This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Michael Grinston, the Sergeant Major of the Army, on the struggle of being biracial. Sometimes my life I felt like it's in the movie The Green Book where the actor gets out of the car and he says, I'm not black enough for the black people, I'm not white enough for the white people. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Milwaukee has been referred to in numerous studies as the most racist city in America. I reject it. John Norquist, the former mayor, says that's baloney and it's disgusting. The Urban Institute and the University of New York, Albany and some other partners came up with this dissimilarity index back in the 1950s. And I don't think they intended to be racist, but I think it's one of the most racist constructions to measure racism that ever came, that's come up outside of the Ku Klux Klan. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality. Exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. So one evening I was sitting around and on TV came uh, United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell. And I watched that show. I enjoy it. And he came on. He said, uh, well, tonight I want to talk about the most racist city in America. And before you say Montgomery, Alabama or Little Rock, Arkansas, let me tell you, the most racist city in America is Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Well, that caught my attention because I went to the University of Wisconsin. I've been to Milwaukee. And I am able to put us in contact with somebody who might be able to add some contacts to this. His name is John Norquist. He was the mayor of Milwaukee from 1988 till 2004. And full disclosure, he was my University of Wisconsin college roommate. John, welcome to Colors. We're delighted to have you on with us. Yeah, well, it's good to be on with you. So I know C. Yes, exactly. Welcome, Mr. Uh, so t- tell me, is Milwaukee a racist city, as Kamal Bell says? No. Uh, the dissimilarity uh, the index is what they use. It was something started in the 1950s. And the idea behind the dissimilarity index was that black people shouldn't congregate in large groups anywhere, that they should be evenly spread so that they didn't hurt property values it was a very fear, fear-based uh, thing that was brought up, and liberals bought into it somewhat because they were obsessed with integration. And so it became shorthand for where the most racist cities are. So all the cities that have lots of black people in them are the ones that are labeled as the most racist cities. So Memphis, Milwaukee, Detroit, St. Louis, you know, anywhere black people congregate, gets stuck with the label. In the 2000 census, for example, Milwaukee was rated as number two in the country in uh, 
racial dissimilarity, which made it the second most racist in 2020. I mean, in, um, in that was in 2000. In 2010, it was rated, according to the Brookings Institute, as the number one most racist uh, city in the country. But then so were Memphis. They were all in the top 10. Memphis, Detroit, uh, Kansas City, all the ones that have black populations. And it's disgusting. And there's another index that has come out that shows the uh, diversity index. And Milwaukee is the sixth most diverse city out of 500 and some cities in the country. Uh, Pretty close to number one in diversity. over half the black population in the state of Wisconsin, over 60% actually of this black population in the state of Wisconsin is in Milwaukee. About a third of the Hispanic population is in Milwaukee. It's a majority minority city. About 55% of the people are not white. Um, and there's more African Americans in uh, every census tract in Milwaukee. Uh, than in, say, Brookfield, which is a big suburb west of Milwaukee, which was rated as almost perfect in racial dissimilarity. It was the number one in the metro area in, in dis, in, on the dissimilarity index on the good side because they have a tiny amount of black people living in less than 1% of the population of Brookfield, but it's evenly distributed. So therefore, they're not racist. In Milwaukee, where the black people live, is racist. And uh, so I reject it. The Urban Institute and the University of New York, Albany, and some other partners came up with this dissimilarity index back in the 1950s. And I don't think they intended to be racist, but I think it's one of the most racist constructions to measure racism that ever came, that's come up outside of the Ku Klux Klan. That's really interesting. Yeah, what's your reaction to that, J.J.? No, I actually don't want to react. I want to ask a question first. Sure. Mr. Mayor, um, do you know who W. Kamau Bell is? Um, Are you familiar with the program that Chris is talking about? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I've heard okay. the name before, and I'm trying so to... There's a, he, he does a program called the United Shades of America, and he goes to communities all over the country, white communities, black communities, um, spends time with Native Americans, Um, Asians, uh, Latinos, all over the place. And one of the things that I know from watching this program over time is that this program is designed to do essentially what Chris and I are doing is to get at the heart of uh, conceptions and misconceptions about this, that, and the other. And I think that's a part of the reason why Chris wanted to have you on this program. One of the things that W. Kamal Bell says in his piece that he wrote for CNN was that Why Milwaukee? Because Milwaukee comes up number one on lists of America's most segregated cities. If that surprises you, he says, you are not alone. Most people who don't know Milwaukee have no idea it's one of America's blackest major cities. He says Milwaukee is 40% black, which makes it blacker than Chicago, Compton, Oakland, which is where he lives. He says, as I learned from the people I met there, the racism in Milwaukee extends into the suburbs and throughout the entire state of Wisconsin. So what I what I gather from him is that he went and talked to some people that live there in different communities. And I think that's where his idea of this came from, not necessarily from that list. Obviously, as mayor, you talk to people in the community. Can you um, enlighten us as to what? 
race relations were in fact like in Milwaukee. I understand your statistical viewpoint, and there's some sense in that, uh, in that it's a segregated city and that the population is not uh, spread throughout the entire um, city itself. But how, when you were mayor and, and since then, how, is, how are race relations in Milwaukee? Well, uh, my parents moved to Milwaukee in 1967. When I was a senior in high school, I finished up in Springfield, Illinois, which has its own race problems, including a white race riot right after World War I. Uh, but anyway, when I got to Milwaukee, that's when Father Grappi was marching uh, for housing integration. And my father was a civil rights activist. He had been arrested down in Mississippi, so he uh, marched with Grappi. Um, and we lived on the south side, which was had a lot of Hispanic population then, but not, not very many blacks. And so uh, that was going on in Milwaukee. So my first impression was that with all the turmoil going on, it must be a really racist place. But you have to look at these things in context. Uh, within the state of Wisconsin, Milwaukee's the one place where there's enough African-Americans to have an African-American culture. It's enough, there's enough African-Americans to have a big influence on elections in the government. Um, whereas with the state, it's, there's not that many African-Americans out of 6 million people in Wisconsin. So the state tends to not look at uh, Milwaukee as that favorably because, and it is, there is a lot of racial isolation. In the metropolitan area, it's very segregated. Like I said, Brookfield, the one that has the best rating on the dissimilarity index, uh, is, uh, almost has no blacks living in it whatsoever. It's almost all white or uh, there's some Hispanics, not too many. And then the East Indian population, there's some Asian population there, but it's over 90% white. Uh, so, you know, I, I think there has to be a different way of looking at, first of all, look at the value that African-Americans contribute to the economy, to the culture, um, to um, all the aspects of human life. And in Milwaukee, because white people and black people do business together, they work together, they go to school together, um, the city itself is a place that probably has the most positive interactions between the races of anywhere in Wisconsin. Or another way I put it when people ask me about this issue in Wisconsin is Milwaukee's the least racist city in the state of Wisconsin. That doesn't mean there's not racism. It, and it does mean that Wisconsin has a lot of problems with things like that. I mean, even Bob LaFollette was a little bit of a racist uh, as part of the progressive movement, had negative attitudes and negative statements about African-American people. Uh, so, you know, any place where there's a big black culture in, in a city in this country, you have to realize that there's all kinds of benefits to that, like New Orleans, uh, you know, Harlem, whatever. So um, that's the, my perspective on it, is that Milwaukee... Uh, you know, it deals with these issues on a daily basis at work, at play, you know, all these things. And sure, there's racism, but uh, if you just focus on that, 
it has a stigmatizing effect on the city and on any city that has a large black population. So, Mr. Mayor, um, do you think the race racism problem that you're talking about is worse now than when you were there or has it improved? What do you think? I, you know, I don't want to sound like self um, pat myself on the back. And, I, and the fact is, it probably has improved because the city has become even more diverse. It, it hasn't become improved just because of government policies or um, in terms of the police department, it has not improved. And the, Milwaukee's basically lost control of its police department uh, to state government, which is run by the Republicans, except for we now have a Democratic governor, although they stripped a lot of his power in a lame duck session right before he was sworn in. But the, the uh, police union gives money to the Republicans. They've always supported the Republicans. And uh, the Republicans pass laws that make it almost impossible to hire uh, people in Milwaukee. They got rid of the, they, they destroyed the residency law, even though it was a bargained issue. And uh, the police union could have bargained to, get, to take it out, but instead the legislature gave it to them for nothing. Uh, when I was mayor, I was negotiating a contract with the police union and uh, because I had some leverage on them, uh, they, the officers were paid by the city, by the guy that was in before me, made that deal with them. And uh, it, was a, it wasn't a mandatory subject of bargaining. So if I didn't put it in the arbitration offer, it was gone. And so I had that leverage and I was able to uh, get a, a lot more control over how the department's operating. And, uh, but then when the next budget came up, Governor Tommy Thompson, who was governor at the time, uh, undid what I got in negotiations by state law in the state budget and never talked to me. I found out about it from the village or from the city manager in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, called me up and said, did you see what's in the budget? So the Republicans just look at the Milwaukee Police Union as a ally, as you know, somebody that they have to support. And that's why when the, a cop misbehaves, uh, it's awfully hard to, to uh, enforce the employee laws on them. Uh, so that's a problem. And that's, that's probably gotten worse, uh, not better. Hey, that's, uh, that's very interesting, John, because when we were, when we started this thing, one of the big questions I had about George Floyd was, you know, Minneapolis. In my mind, Minneapolis is this nice, happy Minnesota, nice city. And Milwaukee is kind of like that in Wisconsin. But we saw what happened with the police force in Minneapolis. And now you're saying that it's pretty much the same thing in Milwaukee. Is that right? That's right. It's even more extreme in Minneapolis because they haven't had a residency law for a long time. The residency law in Wisconsin was... Uh, eliminated two or three years ago, I mean, in uh, Milwaukee. Uh, but in Minneapolis, they haven't had one for a long, long time. And so over 90% of the police officers in Minneapolis live outside the city. It's about half the, that number in, uh, I mean, when the, when the Republicans repealed the residency law in Milwaukee, which, which was a negotiated part of the contract, uh, and gave it to them for free to the police union and it cost taxpayers in Milwaukee money. When they did that, uh, about half of the police officers were gone within about a year. 
Really? Uh, no, it was yeah. like the Oklahoma land rush going to the suburbs. And, uh, and they, that just makes them think more like they're an occupying army, that they don't have anything in common with the people in the city. Uh, there are some African-American police officers in both Minneapolis and St. Paul. But uh, when we had a residency law, it made it easier to hire local, which meant more minorities. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, that's gotten worse. You know, um, most of the anti-racist activists that I know and a lot of people who study this stuff think that there's a difference between reg- uh, racism and prejudice. And some of them say that a lot of people, a lot of people are treated poorly because of their skin color um, is just prejudiced, uh, prejudice. Others say racism requires prejudice and power together. Uh, I agree and, with the second one. Yeah, it, it, it involves both. And, okay. And so when you look at the way this country evolved, you know, through, from the indigenous people, and of course, African and Africans came here as ens- enslaved people, um, you know, there's prejudice embedded in all of that, you know, America's structures and institutions. So people that have been trying to dismantle this structural racism uh, you know, say that it's a daunting task, but they do see some movement. But I'm wondering um, if you are aware of who those folks are in that area that are trying to dismantle that structural racism in Milwaukee, because I understand there are, there are a number of people and organizations that are working hard to do that there. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I I dealt with, in my time, it was groups like ACORN and the NACP and so forth. Um, And there's BLM didn't exist at that time, but if it did, I would have dealt Mm -hmm. with them. I would have had to deal with them. Um, But the, um, you, that, that point about it being both the prejudice and the power, that's absolutely true. Prejudice. You could, if it was just prejudice, you could have a Kumbaya session. You could sit around a church, you know, bring the priest and the, and their ministers in and, and uh, talk about how we all need to think good thoughts and get along better. But that isn't it. It's power. That's why after the Civil War, where there were black congressmen and senators for a while, governors, but the, the white uh, aristocracy in the South, they, they knew it was about power. So they used the Ku Klux Klan and they used the exhaustion that the North had with dealing with the issue, and they were able in the 1890s to convert almost back to slavery with Jim Crow. And that was about power. Without the power, they would have had to pay attention. You know, it's like right now, if you, if you uh, have any place where people can't vote, some people vote, other people can't vote. uh, The people that can't vote aren't going to have power and they're going to be oppressed. And, and, you know, so that's why um, there, it really has to be both. Very fact, the power is more important than the prejudice. I mean, I remember uh, Michael McGee was a sort of militant black alderman during my time who I got along with and then didn't get along with and then got along with. And today we, we get along fine. But uh, and he was a fighter, you know, and he was always fighting for power. And he said, I don't want to I don't want you to give me anything I can't take. Yeah. I mean, don't give me anything I, I can take. 
I want to be able to take it. I don't want you to give it to me. And, uh, you know, he, he was like, uh, he, he wanted power. And, and, and anybody that gets into politics, if they want to do something, they should want power. If they just want a pension and sit around and sit on their ass at the council meeting, fine. But uh, if, you want to do, if you want to get something done, you have to have power. So it's about the power. Yes. That's a great, great point, John. Really, really interesting. Mr. Mayor, I do appreciate this opportunity. Um, Chris has spoken about you very fondly, and I can see why. So thank you for sharing uh, some insight into Milwaukee's situation. Okay, yeah, my pleasure. You know, that was a pretty fantastic interview. Mr. Norquist, your friend from so long ago, yep. um, keeps up with things. Um, he wasn't familiar with W. Kamau Bell, but he was familiar with what Bell was talking about. Uh, and he did a magnificent job explaining how things are. One of the things that he talked about specifically was how defunding the police is going to be a disaster if it, if it results in police police officers leaving you know we we've seen just this week the seattle police chief essentially say that's it i'm done retiring because a significant amount of her force is left so um you know he seems to have his finger on the pulse of things there in milwaukee yeah i also think what he said about the residency requirement was very interesting that uh he had a residency requirement that if you were going to be a police officer in milwaukee you had to live within the city limits of milwaukee Mm -hmm. and then the state legislature uh, overturned that and said no you can hire whoever you want to and as he said the police department has probably gotten worse because of it and i i like the residency it makes very good sense that we what you get to the problem with that is uh, can be affordability that in some cities on a police officer or a firefighter's salary you know you can't afford to live in the city you're serving but ideally you do want the people who serve in the police to be in the communities that they are policing at least that's my view Yeah. And again, like what we discovered when we first started talking about this, I don't think that defund the police, the movement is designed to actually take the money away. I think it's designed to start the conversation and make it a deeper conversation about deeper things, deeper issues, deeper outcomes. And uh, it seems like we got to some of that with Mr. Norquist last week. You're listening to Colors. My name is Adam Carter. I am white and i am from uh, south st paul minnesota it is a suburb of st paul based on the events that happened uh, during the previous administration when we had uh, black men die at the hands of white police officers and the unrest we saw uh, nothing really has changed after those deaths and now with the current administration and the divisiveness in this country it is something that i think somebody could have seen coming now did we know that it would be on this scale that uh, the reverberation of george floyd's death would have an impact not only uh, in the u.s but around the world i don't think so 
My name is Melissa Howell. I'm a black woman and I'm a reporter for WTOP Radio. I've covered many major events for much of my career, but for me, there's something different about the protests that have been sparked by the death of George Floyd. These voices remind me of my own everyday experiences and how numb and broken many black people are left because of those same experiences. Whether it's healthcare disparities, racial profiling, or other forms of systemic racism and oppression, these for me are very destructive acts of violence African-Americans live with every day. To see so many people of all races and ages protesting in ways that amplify these experiences in a country built on blood, it gives me a lot of feelings, but I hope these protests lead to a kind of meaningful change, and I hope they move us toward progress. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. You know, something happened this week, J.J., uh, earlier in the week, uh, there was a looting along the Miracle Mile in Chicago, an area I know very well. It's a, a very upscale, rich uh, community. It's the stores there, the high-end stores like Gucci and Louis Vuitton and so on. And they're under the excuse, I guess, of protests, uh, people came up and looted those stores, smashed the windows and stole expensive jewelry and and handbags and things like that uh i can tell you now that there's going to be a strong reaction to this the mayor of chicago Lori lightfoot has already said that uh, there's going to be a reaction to this i mean she's ticked off about it because she said this is not protesting this is thuggery this is looting this is going to come back in a way that's going to have um bad effects on the very movement that you and I have been trying to promote on these podcasts. What's your view of what happened? Well, two wrongs don't make a right. I know that's old hat and it's cliche, but it's true. One of the things that came up as a result of this was there, there's been a lot of reporting about um, the Black Lives Matter movement holding a rally supporting the individuals who were arrested. And what was said in one of those at one of those rallies was that some of these people might have done this because they needed to do it, to eat or to clothe themselves. And not a lot of people are buying that. Um, but at the same time, what really has to be focused on here is you cannot do that uh, in good conscience and say you're supporting the Black Lives Matter movement because the Black Lives Matter movement is not about robbery. It's not about larceny. It's not about breaking and entering. It's not about violence. It's not about any of that. It's about heightening the nation's and the world's consciousness of the value of black lives. So, yeah, and what, and unfortunately, what the, the, I, should this continue, this kind of thing continue, there will be a tremendous crackdown by authorities and it won't be pretty. And this kind of thuggery just has to stop. It's just exactly what you said. It's not furthering the cause. In fact, I think it's doing a lot of damage to the cause. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, though, Chris, we, we can't we can't set the table that way and say, OK, you did this. So now you got to expect this and and encourage people to go out and do this crackdown, because that's just going to make things worse. Don't you think? I'm just saying I, I, I know what the inevitable consequence of this is going to be, um, and that is that if it continues, you will see the Chicago. You know, I've seen the Chicago police in action 
uh, I realized it was a long time ago, back when Chicago police were cracking down on, on people that were protesting. But um, and you know what I'm referring to, the 1968 yeah. uh, Democratic Convention and what happened then. You, you don't want that going on. That All that's going to do is fuel the flames even more. But, but do you really think that where we are right now, they're actually going to go out and do that, though? Yes. Yes. If this continues and you go into places like along Michigan, Michigan Avenue uh, in the area of the expensive stores and this continues to happen, yes, I do think that will happen. Well, Chris, that's not policing. That's retaliation. I, I understand that. I'm, I'm not I'm not saying this is ideal. Like you asked me what I think. And I I think there will be, you know, for every reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I think you will see a, a, a reaction that will not be pretty. And I hope it doesn't. I hope this ends it. Hope it doesn't continue. Hope lessons have been learned, but it better stop because, uh, you know, it, it will have consequences. Man, listen to you. <laughs> that sounds like a threat, man. I'm not threatening. I'm just saying what I think is going to be. I, I've, I've watched this my whole life. Yeah. And when when there I when I was on, on at the University of Wisconsin with John, uh, he and I were talking after we finished our interview um, about what happened on campus when there were protests on campus. And we saw the Dane County Sheriff's officers come in and start smacking kids around with billy clubs and the and the kids Sometimes we're smashing windows on State Street in Madison and, and uh, causing trouble. Other times it was just we were just trying to go to class and they would chase us. I got chased into a corner on my way back from class by some sheriff's officers or maybe they were National Guard. I think they were National Guard in this case. And they started lobbing tear gas at me. Well, I hadn't done anything. I was just trying to get back to back to the dorm from class. And I had to you know put my handkerchief up and my shirt up to try to get through the tear gas. I've just seen it happen. Okay, I hear you. Um, I'm just hopeful that someone in Chicago, the police, the mayor, community activists, somebody recognizes that that is just not a good idea. No, it was not right to attack the money and the people who have the money and the stores and all that. But going back and with a with a heavy-handed crackdown, that's just not a good idea. So hopefully it won't happen. Anyway, I have a question for you. Um, this is the 10th episode of our show. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think? I mean, have we moved the needle in your head on this? I mean, we started off talking about, you asked me one question you asked me in our first episode, was um, how I felt when police were around. You know, and I told yeah. you, you know, if I didn't think about that, I'd be irresponsible. I would be negligent. I right. would be to not be concerned. Uh, we've talked about statues. We've talked about buildings and the names of military bases. We just had we've had wonderful interviews with people to dig down into this. I'm just interested in what you think about. Are we doing anything here? Well, we're raising, um, I think, people's consciousness about this. Uh, you, you mentioned names. I had absolutely no idea, nor did many people, as it turns out, that uh, all the U.S. Uh, Army bases around the country are named after <laughs> Southern um, uh, generals. And I had no idea, but never thought for a second what Fort Bragg was named after. Uh, no idea why there's not a Fort Grant. Um, but it, it's just it's interesting to me that that that. Um, you know, that that is what it is and, and that that's being looked into. So that's just an example of something. It's not that it's that important particularly, but it does raise 
some things that are worth thinking about. Um, so that's one of them. You, I'll tell you one thing. You, you, the last episode we had with the sergeant major of the Army, um, I asked you, he said he struggled his whole life with his racial identity because he was, he is, his mom was white and his dad was black and he, he had to choose. He said there weren't, there, there was no other. So it was either white or black, which one? And sometimes he said white, sometimes he said black, mm-hmm. but he said he struggled with it. And I ask you, I don't understand why is it a struggle, uh, what your racial identity is? Cause I, you know, I, I don't get it. And I, your answer was really interesting to me. You said, well, maybe it's not at a certain point in your life after you've already been successful, after you've had a career, after you've had um, some money, after you've had some success. Okay, now maybe it's not. But when you're first starting and when you're struggling to figure out where you're going and trying to make it in this world and all that, then it is important because that is who you are and that is how other people perceive you. And I really didn't hear that. I think it was a kind way of you to say to me, Chris, you don't get it because, <laughs> you know, the age you are and the success you have and, you know, you've you're, you're OK. You're not struggling with it because, you know, you've made it. But picture yourself at age 25 or at 24 or at 23 and being of mixed race or being black or being Asian. And um, I, I, that that hit home with me the more I thought about it. that was a really that was a very thoughtful response on your part. Well, thank you very much, Chris. But I'll tell you why you really, why I think that really hit home with you is because we've known each other for 30 years. Mm-hmm. We're not the best of friends, but we are good enough friends to respect each other and to care about each other and to think that we can make a difference by being honest with each other because a lot of people won't do that. You know that? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. we, you know, we can do that, but. To be honest about it, no, I wasn't throwing that at you. Um, I'm glad you glad you got it, though, but I wasn't <laughs> throwing that at you. But that is exactly it. You just, when you're in it, you're in it, you know, and you can't, you can't see past it. When you're in the eye of, when you're in the eye of the storm, you can only see what you can see in that storm, and you don't know. So you got to do what you got to do, and that's what a lot of people do, like the sergeant major did. Uh, and many people continue to do is they just do the best they can. So, um, you know, I have a, I have a question. I, I every time we have these conversations, I do like to ask a question that's less serious, perhaps than the others, the hmm. things we discussed just for a reason. And I just noticed this. In fact, my wife pointed it out to me. So I'm in the uh, Tampa Bay area of Florida and uh, I read the Tampa Bay Times, which is a very good newspaper. And we've noticed that when they write the race of a person, if the person is black, it's with a capital B. And if the person is white, it's with a small W. Now, you're a, a very good writer and you're a journalist. Uh, is there a stylistic reason why black should be capitalized and white is not capitalized? I can't say that, that, I, that I've ever heard of it. I mean, I don't do that. Um, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe they're doing it wrong. Um, we may have to have a, a lingua, uh, uh, what do you call them? Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to think of the name too. Right. Somebody would, <laughs> someone who would, who would understand it better. I just asking you as somebody who, you know, you're a smart guy and you know, this stuff. And I, like if it was Caucasian, I think they would capitalize the C. So perhaps, and certainly if it's African-American, you would capitalize the A, but I don't know why. But I've just noticed stylistically whether that is, um, you know, a, a journalism tool that I was unaware of. 
I think the term is a grammarian. Yeah, grammarian. Good. That's so good. maybe what we should do is ask on this show, if you are a grammarian, can you get back to us, and you know the style of newspaper or whatever, can you get back to us and let us know what the proper, um, what is it we want to say? Yeah, uh, and if you want to reach us, we are at the colors podcast one word the colors podcast at gmail.com we would love to hear from you i'm jj green and i'm black i'm chris core and i'm white and this is colors coming up in our next episode of colors asian americans have been targeted during the coronavirus this sort of treatment towards asian americans is not new Anjali Chong is a labor lawyer in Seattle and past president of the Korean American Coalition of Washington. With, with the pandemic and with, the, with it being labeled the China virus and the Kung flu, that certainly has not helped and in fact has fueled the anti-Asian sentiment. A deep look at the impact. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. That's it for this episode. Before we go, we'd like to give credit where credit is due. Hillary Howard, Will Vitka, Mike Jakaitis, Michelle Bash, Thomas Warren, Jamie Smith, Sarah Beth Hensley, Dimitri Sotis, Sean Anderson, Kyle Cooper, Tiffany Arnold, Fonda Mwangi, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Beth Gibbs, Jared Ruderman, Lisa Weiner. Thank you to Cosmic and Jesse Gallagher. And to the one, two, sixers for the music. And most of all, thank you for listening. And remember, keep talking to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. 